Today's episode is brought to you by the pyramids. Over two millennia ago, people were able to create a near-perfect geometric structure on a massive scale by hand? Well, there's certainly no way our Eurocentric mindset can comprehend the idea that we didn't come up with mathematics and measurement first. So clearly, the only logical explanation has to be aliens. Yes, alien robots from space built the pyramids, just like in 1994's Mega Man World 5 on today's episode of What Am I Podcasting For? Hello, and welcome to What Am I Podcasting For? My name's Garlisle, and this show is the chronicle of my attempts to play through the entire Mega Man series. From Mega Man 1 to Mega Man 11, and as many of the 100-plus games in between as I can manage. And today, we're playing a Game Boy game. Or kind of a Game Boy game. The first nifty thing that I'm going to mention about Mega Man 5 is that this game was specifically designed not for the Game Boy, and not for the Game Boy Color either. The Game Boy Color isn't going to happen for like another four years, surprisingly actually, you would think it would be happening by now, but rather by the midpoint step that existed, referred to as the Super Game Boy. The Super Game Boy was actually an SNES piece of equipment. You slotted it into the cartridge slot of the SNES, and then you put a Game Boy game into the device itself. And this allowed the system to play your Game Boy games on your screen, with many games being customly assigned, like fancy external borders and stuff, and certain games taking advantage of detecting that it was being played on a Super Game Boy to actually inject some color into the games when the hardware it was originally meant to be played on could not yet do that. Now, its ability to do this is still somewhat limited. The big distinction for the Super Game Boy's graphics is that it still only displays, essentially, four colors. However, each, I guess we'll call it each row of the Super Game Boy's display, could be set to have those four colors be different colors. So, despite the fact that we are about to tackle a Game Boy game, please take note that like every stage in this game actually has its own different color scheme to it when it's played in the intended way, and where possible, when they were doing cutscenes and stuff, they took advantage of the fact that they could display different palettes at a time to actually make like text boxes pop in different colors. The health display at the bottom of the screen is also using a different color at all points throughout gameplay so that it really stands out. I, I just wanted to cover like what the technology was capable of because it was a neat little like sidestep upgrade to what the original Game Boy was capable of. Because on a technical level, that is most of the new stuff that we're going to be seeing in World 5 as far as technology goes. Up to this point, if you missed the episodes, Mega Man World 1, 2, 3, and 4 were essentially like mixed port titles. Each game took bosses from two different Mega Man games, pulled them together, remixed the stages up a good chunk, and had you fight like a new Wily machine at the end of it. So while many of the aspects of the original games were maintained, the world games were, yeah, remix is really the best word for it. Mega Man World 5, however, 
is getting its own episode because that's not what happened with World 5. World 5 begins story-wise with a meteorite coming down to Earth. And when it hits right next to Mega Man and Roll, a robot with the most like 80s hair metal band hairdo I have ever seen jumps out and challenges Mega Man to a fight because he has recognized Mega Man as the defender of Earth and he's going to crush the main threat to their invasion to begin with because I wasn't kidding in that opening. The plot of this game is ancient alien robots... Um, but anyway, Mega Man tries to take down the robot in question, but unfortunately all of his Mega Buster shots, even the fully charged one, are just bouncing off of Terra harmlessly. Yeah, this robot's name is Terra, by the way. So Terra's able to defeat Mega Man. A couple months later, Dr. Light manages to finish restoring Mega Man and fixing him back up, but everything's gone to heck in that time. The Earth's been under attack from these mysterious star droids. Fortunately, while Dr. Light says that conventional weaponry does not work on these robots' bodies because they are made of mysterious space metals, Dr. Light has developed a weapon that will. He's replaced Mega Man's Charge Buster with the Mega Arm. That's the other new feature for Mega Man World 5, is that we have ditched the traditional Charge Buster in favor of what is kind of a nerfed version. The Mega Arm literally shoots off Mega Man's hand like a rocket punch, and then it flies back to him. It does have limited range if you're having to use it from the end of the screen, and you can't fire again while it's out. So it acts as definitely this, like, nerfing effect to the Mega Buster, which, like, we've gone over this a few times in the game. When the Mega Buster's too good when charged up, it can kind of weaken a lot of the impact of the other weapons in the game. The Mega Arm doesn't really have this problem. It's still a functional weapon, but there's lots of cases in this game where we'll be wanting to use other weapons, so it worked. That said, I think this is the only game that actually uses this Mega Arm as a thing, so they apparently didn't decide to bring it back to the main series afterwards. Another new feature we'll be seeing in Mega Man World 5 is the introduction of Tango. We still have Rush. He's still hanging around as a utility tool for the jet and coil, but we'll actually have to go win those off of bosses. Tango is a robot cat, and we can call him down to essentially be a fighting buddy for us. We can still use our regular buster while he's out, but he will also bounce around the room and attack enemies on his own. I wouldn't say equivalent to Beat, because Tango is fairly grounded, whereas Beat could just go wherever the heck he wants, but it is kind of the same idea. Other than that, this game definitely feels like it is built on the Mega Man World 4 engine. This means that we have P-chips and the ability to go shopping, as well as the ability to buy the energy balancer. Hallelujah! We have E-Tank fragments as a thing that exist. We have cinematics in the game, some of them done using like just the typical side-scroller visual design and sometimes more cinematic shots. This game is basically accumulation of everything that they were experimenting with and developing in the world games when they were porting them and doing their minor upgrades, but this time it's being put towards a whole new adventure, and that's what gives Mega Man World 5 kind of a special attention and status. One thing that didn't change as we move into the actual gameplay here is that we still have only four Robot Masters to select from. Robot Masters is actually the incorrect term. In this game, they're the Star Droids, which means each of them is named for a different entity in the solar system. So let's start our trip through the solar system by starting out at Mercury. Mercury stage, this is a new stage, but it is fairly standard. These stages aren't like crazily different from traditional Mega Man fare, but they always like to throw in their own little twists, and Mercury Stage is a good example of this, in that it is a typical factory setting. We get, like, conveyor belts, we get 
like crushing floors. This one does try to trick you out a little bit by having the conveyor belts in any given room change directions every few seconds, which is probably going to kill you if you fail to notice it at some point, but once you realize that it's going on, it's not really that bad. The boss fight for Mercury, though, is actually very distinctive among the bosses that we've seen so far, because it's kind of like, what if the Yellow Devil was a star droid? Mercury kind of just stands off in the corner and fires shots roughly aimed in your direction. Whenever you hit him, however, he turns into a small ball and then, like, bounces across the room before eventually, like, reforming and becoming vulnerable again. Basically, like an easier mode Yellow Devil. The big thing to note here is he doesn't have, like, 20-second transfers between phases when you can actually hit him. It actually only takes like three or four seconds, so it's even better than like the wheel gator problem I was running into in the previous game. And because he does this whenever he's hit, you can even stop him from doing his other attacks. He's a really good boss to start the game with, because he isn't terribly difficult, he's very easy to learn. Next up, we head to Venus's stage, which actually has a bunch of new stuff. This is a stage that has a very watery sort of design to it. Not actually an underwater stage, but you'll see like a ton of bubbles that are floating around this stage that sometimes they're actually camouflaged enemies. There's crabs that blow bubbles that don't actually damage you, but rather trap you in them, and you have to pop them before they drag you into a pit. There's waterfalls that like come down in certain areas, and they don't damage you the way that certain other timing obstacles would, but rather the waterfalls completely remove any terrain they are covering. So like, if you're climbing a ladder and a waterfall comes down, you're just going to fall. This is a stage that is full of just unique bits and bobs that actually makes it very fleshed out and fun to experience. Venus himself, this is a boss fight where Tango actually helps a ton, because the main thing Venus does is jump around and fire various bubble attacks. Some home in on you steadily until you destroy them, some hang around and just float in the air as explosives, but Tango's randomly bouncing around the arena while you're fighting actually doesn't just keep the pressure on the boss and help you hit him more frequently, but also accidentally clears out the projectiles that Venus is firing, which is great. The next star droid we'll chase down is Mars who is basically in a military facility, so we get a lot of, like, mines hidden on the ground, but you do have time to get off them before they blow up when you realize they're there. There's, like, missile platforms and missile-themed enemies and everything. It's a very thematically-oriented stage. The boss himself, Mars, is designed basically as a full-on artillery. His head is a cannon, and his hands are cannons, and so he can fire missiles at you, run across the arena and leave mines behind. He can fire homing torpedoes. He has kind of an interesting attack. It's literally just rapid firing shots straight across the arena, but the safest way to actually deal with that attack is just to spam your own Mega Buster and counter out the attacks themselves. It's just kind of an interesting little mechanic, and he's got a lot of different attacks that actually make the fight really fun and reactive. Next stop on our Solar System tour is Neptune. Um, that's... That's slightly wrong, but I guess they had to move one of the planets into the, like, first section to make four bosses. Neptune stage is actually really cool thematically. It begins on top of a floating warship. There's no platforming at all in this section, just a bunch of, like, turrets and flying enemies harassing you until you reach the entrance of the ship itself. And then inside the ship, you have, like, some familiar things like steam vents from Waveman stage or, like, water currents trying to push you around like Toadman stage. But this time there's pipes that are part of the environment that if you don't hit these pipes with your weapons, 
they don't break, and you can avoid having some of these obstacles come into existence. It's actually just a really clever overall design stage, and I really liked it. Neptune himself is kind of a chump by comparison. He does a couple very slow jumps across the arena, and then either, like, lobs out a water shot that splits into a bunch of fragments, or he shakes the screen and causes a bunch of random droplets to try to fall down on you. There's so much downtime between his attacks, and the one coming from the ceiling takes so long that you can really just kind of damage rush this dude down. He's a chump. By the time you've completed these four stages, you can probably have picked up some P-chips before we go on to our mid-boss stage. With these P-chips, you can actually pick up upgrades to the Mega Arm as new items to purchase. There's two different upgrades you can pick up. The first one is a utility upgrade, whereby the Mega Arm, when it's returning to you, can actually grab any power-ups. This is actually really, really useful. Picking this up can help save you from needing to do some tricky platforming to get to, like, out-of-the-way E-tanks and stuff, and just in general is, like, really helpful for simplifying the stages and being able to get more out of them. The other upgrade is supposed to be a power upgrade where when you hit an enemy square on with the Mega Arm, it will, like, grab onto them and continually squeeze to do additional damage. The thing is, is I have no idea how this worked. None at all. It does. Sometimes. And when it does, it will just grab onto an enemy and basically finish them off for you. And then other times it just doesn't, and I have no idea if it's just random or if there was some control thing that I didn't figure out, but shrug. Anyway, now that we've taken on the four star droids that are invading the Earth, we go after their leader, Terra. We get a cutscene of Mega Man exploring, like, a space launch pad area, finding absolutely nobody around, and then Terra ambushes him. And when Terra realizes Mega Man's actually capable of harming him, he gets the heck out of dodge and calls on Dark Moon, which is... I mean, I'm not 100% sure it was supposed to be the name of this boss because of some stuff we're going to see later, but essentially we get a fight with a Yellow Devil now. And honestly, Yellow Devil on a small Game Boy screen could have been a nightmare, but they made a point to have this boss function very, very slowly in terms of, like, his parts are clearly marked as about to fly off before they go at you, and he does all of his reforming off-screen as well, so you actually have more room to maneuver and dodge. It's really not nearly as bad as it could have been. Having done all that, though, we find out in a cutscene that the robots had actually been invading Earth in order to get a ton of Earth resources in order to build an army of robots, and they're going to be on their way soon to invade the Earth, and that's not going to be good. But then Mega Man gets the great idea of like, hey, Dr. Light, modify Rush so I can go into space again, like at the end of World 4, and I will go after these guys myself. I will take the fight to them. These next four stages are supposed to actually be set on the other planets of the solar system. And as is typical of the second set of stages in a Mega Man world game, these do count as fortress stages, which means we don't automatically recover all of our ammunition and stuff, but we can just pick up a fill-up at Dr. Light's lab if we really need to. These stages also have, instead of the Wily letters or anything like that, they have these fancy shining gemstones we can find, and they are actually somewhat hidden. You're going to have to take, like, alternate routes through levels and use different weapons from these bosses to access hidden rooms, but if you collect all four of these, we can take them back to the lab and have Dr. Light make us an upgrade that permanently halves the energy cost of all of our weapons, which, that's a really cool reward. It doesn't give us a new tool that might be overpowered powered or underpowered, it actually enhances our functionality, which, hey, I really like that. But anyway, the first planet we need to go kick some butt on is Jupiter.
Jupiter stage is set kind of in like a base in space in orbit around the planet. You get to like weave in and out of the insides of this electric themed stage. And when you're on the outside of it, the gravity is massively reduced. And it's kind of interesting because like we've had that be a thing before in certain Mega Man games, like Starman stage in Mega Man 5 had reduced gravity. In Jupiter stage, that reduced gravity also applies to like all the projectiles fired by enemies and even some of our own weaponry gets its trajectories changed. That's just kind of a neat little attention to detail that they went that far with it. And of course, the stage also has the gimmick of becoming an ice physics stage halfway through, too, because, I don't know, apparently they didn't think that alone was enough, which, fair enough, but... Jupiter himself is a star droid who fights us pretty much entirely from the top of the screen. He'll fire down an electric beam, then do like a spread of shots, and then kind of like lunge down at us before flying back up to the top of the screen. If you're not using a specific weapon, that's probably the only realistic way to actually target him. Spoilers for when we get to the weapon section, but Venus's weapon is basically designed to be an anti-air weapon, and it's also his weakness. And I love when weapons are designed in such a way that they are like the perfect match for the boss that you are fighting. Next up, after clearing out Jupiter, we can head to Saturn's stage. Saturn's stage is marked primarily by gravity fields in the background. This is not the same thing as Gravity Man, where the fields flipped us upside down, but rather there's gravity fields where the gravity is reduced and we jump much higher, and there's ones that point downwards instead and the gravity is significantly increased and we can barely jump. In the face of all of this, the platforming challenges this puts forth are not really that bad. Like, for the fact this is effectively a Wily's Fortress era stage, the second set of Star Droid stages in this game are really not that bad. We definitely don't have anything in this game along the lines of, like, Crystal Man stage in World 3. Saturn himself, as you would expect from the fact that Saturn as a planet is made distinctive by its rings, is a robot with a large ring that he'll, like, he'll throw it across the arena and, like, jump to cover the other angle. And then when he lands, he'll grab his ring and try to pull you into, like, a gravity field he's generating. And there's kind of a fun effect that happens here, where if you throw the mega arm at him, it actually gets stuck in the gravity field and you just run around with a handless Mega Man for a little while. He also sometimes doesn't throw the ring and instead like hovers at the top of the screen in the center and then stops time and the only way you don't get hit by the follow-up attack is to be directly under him. The main thing I wanted to mention with Saturn is that there is one thing that I don't really like about World 5's design visually, which is that the game oftentimes relies on rotating its palette as like a flashing effect, which is much better than just straight up like blanking the screen in a white effect. Like, don't get me wrong, but you will have that effect going on in this stage a ton. There's like enemies that slow down time if you don't destroy them fast enough, and Saturn himself, when he's doing his gravity field thing, the entire screen gets covered in that effect, and it's I don't think it was, like, as bad as it could have been, but it's still a little bit disorienting and just kind of unnecessary. I don't know. Continuing our trip through the solar system, we head out to Uranus. This is a very Earthy-focused stage with, like, a hint of Pharaoh Man's, like, underground tomb-type design, especially in a mid-boss. We get a lot of moving parts, like, moving platforms, and platforms that appear to be, like, rotating, such that if you stand on them for too long, the visual effect is that, like, you'll be carried off and they'll just drop you beneath themselves. As for Uranus himself, he fights you in actually a very tight corridor for a boss, where he can pick up sections of the floor and throw them at you, or he can like do a huge stomp and try to make the ceiling come crashing down on you, and the only way to avoid it is to be close to him. He's a really intimidating boss at first, 
but he also has a completely static pattern in like when he jumps when he jumps across the arena which attacks he does when like it's completely static and learnable it's just you'd better learn it finally for our last star droid or should i say dwarf droid because i guess it got a demotion pluto this game was made when Pluto was still being officially recognized as a planet, and let's be clear, Pluto was still a planet in my heart as well. Pluto's stage is, again, a like largely underground kind of mining facility sort of thing. The only real distinctive gimmick in it is that there's a lot of falling platforms, and the interesting part about these platforms is that they don't just fall when you walk across them. Sometimes they're actually part of the ceiling and will attempt to fall on you. They won't crush you, but they will do heavy damage if they land on you. Pluto himself has a design you're probably not expecting and that it looks like he's wearing a fursuit. He's also fighting like a Mega Man X boss. He fires a lot of shots that curve around and then he dives across the arena and like zigzags his way up to the corner and stuff. Like he's pretending he's Sigma or something. He feels less like a traditional robot master and not even like the Star Droids. He, he feels like he's from a different series almost. It's just kind of neat. Finally, after defeating these four, we get our rematch with Terra, and we actually get to fight him properly on a moon. He says that we have meddled for the last time with his plans. Uh, meddled and not meddled, because that's the misspelling in the game. He can occasionally stop time just because, but he only seems to do that rarely. The main thing that he does is teleport around while his attack chases us down on its own. It's this weird laser thing that like travels a short distance, stops as a pinpoint, and then redirects itself. So, like, you can jump around it and stuff. It's not quite, like, purely smoothly homing, and it's not something we can shoot down either. We just have to keep dodging it while dodging, like, Terra jumping around and teleporting himself. And with Terra down, we've taken down the nine star droids and can take a sample of our weaponry before we continue the story. Now, having taken down nine star droids, we do in fact get nine weapons in this game. Terra basically was functioning as a Mega Man killer in that he gives us a bonus weapon right as we head into the finale, but he was so close to everything else and his stage was literally just a fight, so I've lumped him in here. As usual, we'll go least impressive weapon to best weapon, and I will say, I really like the weapon set in this game. So, the poorest weapon, and probably the only, like, actually bad weapon in this game, is Uranus's Deep Digger. Why is it bad? TLDR, it's the Super Arm 2.0. It literally only works by picking up blocks in the environment and throwing them. Which means there's a lot of times this weapon is literally non-functional. Unlike the original Super Arm, there is no other weapon which removes the blocks that it does, so sometimes it is actually required to get extra power-ups and like one of the gems and stuff, but it's still the super arm. It, it's destined to be pretty bad. But from here on out, we get to a pretty good weapon set. The photon shot from Mars is like a slower to activate hard knuckle. It fires a small missile that takes about a second and a half before it just launches straight across the screen. This is a slower startup time than the hard knuckle, it isn't, like, slightly aimable up and down like the hard knuckle were during flight, and it doesn't seem to do as much damage. Although, sometimes the fact that it actually pierces through enemies can be a bit of an advantage. It's not spectacular, but it's okay. Also on the okay tier is Jupiter's Electric Shock. This is basically kind of like a short-range flamethrower type effect, but it's electricity instead. It doesn't do massive damage, but it can hit repeatedly, 
You can't run left and right while holding it out, but you can still jump while it's active to move around if you really need to. And its ammo efficiency is pretty decent, so it's like, it's not bad, it's just not super exciting. Next we get Neptune's Saltwater. This is a lobbed water ball that splits into a bunch of shrapnel when it hits. The thing about this shot is that based on like, are you standing still, are you running, are you on ladders, are you holding up or down, you can change the trajectory of this weapon a ton to hit enemies at really awkward angles. I don't think it's like super powerful for its ammo efficiency, so it didn't see a whole lot of use for me, but it's, it's definitely a pretty usable weapon. Next up was Venus's Bubble Bomb. This thing's actually really unique. It fires a floating bubble that'll like waver back and forth around your position as it goes up. Once it hits a wall or a ceiling, it will latch onto it and just like follow it into a corner and then explode on contact with either that corner or an enemy. So it's not good for dealing with things that are like in front of you, but it is amazing at dealing with anything that is above you, which there's actually quite a few places in the game where that's where enemies are hiding out and it's difficult to find them with other weapons. It also feels like anything that it hits is designed to be hit with it and will go down in one shot. So, I don't know, I really, I really quite liked this one. Next up is Saturn's Black Hole. On initial use, this will pretty much instant kill any smaller enemies because it generates a small black hole above your head while the screen is paused. And then the black hole will explode in an outward spiral of bullets and that outward spiraling attack has the capacity to deal damage to enemies as well. So it's kind of like a screen posy type effect, kind of like the center flash or the gravity hold with a little bit more flash to it. I don't think it's quite as spectacular just because the limited size of the Game Boy screen prevents it from really being as necessary, but it's still good. Then we get into three really, really awesome weapons, one of which is Pluto's Break Dash. If you just press the button while you have this weapon equipped, you will fire your regular Mega Buster. If, however, you hold down the button and start to charge, that Mega Buster shot will transform into an invincible dash attack, which will also leave you invincible for like a second afterwards. So yeah, technically you need to charge this weapon to use it, but it only requires like half a second of charge before it like counts, which is basically nothing. Being able to just dash straight through an enemy and then just keep going, and being able to use this to create invincibility for yourself temporarily. What the heck? <laughs> this is the charge kick from Mega Man 5, but actually functional. <laughs> because you don't have to worry about failing to kill an enemy and then just getting punished for it by taking damage. Like, this is neat. I do still wish it didn't have that small little charge problem, but... <laughs> the second place weapon is Mercury's Grab Buster. This is a straightforward basic shot that doesn't appear to do anything special until you hit an enemy with it. If you deal damage with this buster, it will cause a small amount of health to fly off of the enemy and launch straight at you. And I do mean health. You can use this weapon to heal yourself off of enemies, and that's really nice. Especially considering this is a world game. So the stages tend to be long, and there's enemies that can do like 30-40% of your HP and damage if they hit you, and it sometimes feels like you can go an entire stage not seeing any health pickups. The Grab Buster just really, really helps anybody who's struggling to get through the stages by giving them a way to recover that isn't burning through E-Tanks. Good stuff. But there's an even better weapon than that, 
and that's Terra's Spark Chaser. You remember how I mentioned that it's this little, like, laser that just, like, occasionally reorients itself, homes in on you, and the challenge is that he just gets to do whatever he wants while this thing chases you down? Yeah, that is the exact weapon you get to use. You can just fire and forget this weapon, and it's great. And of course, it doesn't just like vanish the first time that it hits an enemy either. It will go through the enemy and then pick another target and lock onto them. You can get several hits from every time that you fire this thing. And the craziest part to me, by the way, is for the fact that this is a laser that is calculating random angles and traveling in them on a Game Boy. Remember when the Gemini laser lagged the games to hell? Even the Sega Genesis game? Because it was like bouncing at an angle? The Spark Chaser doesn't care. It just works. This game has some slowdown problems, and somehow the exact weapon that I would have expected to have cause problems with slowdown does not. So the Spark Chaser is basically like one of the strongest overall weapons that I've seen to date. It's really, really good. But I mean, we did just beat the leader of the Star Droids, right? What could we possibly be using Terra's weapon for? As we face down the defeated Terra, another moon starts rising in the background. And then we realize, that's no moon, that's a Dr. Wily fortress. Yeah, um, first off, Wily's built a Death Star. Holy crap. Second off, he's recruited a race of alien robot super beings to fight for him. And as Dr. Wily prepares to laser beam the moon in his best Eggman impression, Mega Man calls down Rush and gets the heck out of Dodge, and we finally, finally get the shmup stage. <laughs> actually get a stage where we are flying the Rush Marine. Well, apparently it's actually named the Rush Space, but it's Rush adapted into a small spaceship and we get a shmup segment where we have to dodge asteroids, shoot down enemies, and then shoot open the core of Wily's giant Death Star thing, which is firing laser beams at us and stuff, and we just have to wait until that laser beam has gone and then fire at its mouth in order to damage it. It actually does this neat thing for the boss fight where it like zooms out and we become relatively tiny on the screen just to get a sense of the scale of this weapon. It's not a super complicated shmup segment or anything. It's just really, really neatly done for the fact that if this was World 4, they probably would have just made it a cinematic. Then we get into the actual hard part of this game, which is the Wily Fortress, and this is a long stage. If we die at any point between this and our final boss... And game over, we are back to this specific moment, which matters because first off, the stage design is fairly simple, but is largely marked by different like jump down a corridor type sections where if you lean to the left or the right, you might be able to land on some ledges and reach some extra power-ups, but if you do that at the wrong ones, you're going to fall into spikes and there'll be no way for you to respond in time. And there's no indication of what's going to be safe or not. You have to learn this by trial and error. If you fall down the center, you are relatively safe, at least. There is that. But you lose out on the chance of any goodies. The second thing that makes it difficult is that we have a ton of boss fights to fight through, which begins with copies of the four Mega Man killers from the previous world games. Anchor, 
Quint, Punk, and Ballet, we fight them all again during this stage. Fortunately, we don't have to use the Mega Buster against all of them this time. They actually have weaknesses that we can exploit with the various Star Droid weapons. But, hmm. By the way, as we go through this, we actually see a ton of copies of them in tubes, which that explains what the robot army that was being built was in the cutscenes. And I don't know, that's a really neat little cohesion thing going on. Anyway, after we fight the four Mega Man killers, then we actually have to do the eight boss Star Droid gauntlet. And after we do the eight boss Star Droid gauntlet, we get actually kind of a weird bit where we run through a hallway and there's like a bajillion power-up items. And then we get a cameo from Proto Man who throws us a random power-up. It could be a one-up, but it could also just be an S tank that immediately refills everything anyway. And then we fight Dr. Wily. And this is a four-phase fight. In the first phase, there is a giant hand that's trying to crush us from the ceiling, and we have to wait until it comes down, and then on its knuckle, a weak point will be revealed. Then the second phase is another knuckle. This time, it actually at least fires like homing missiles and like moves around a bit on the ground to try to trip us up. If you don't have the half-weapon cost effect from collecting the gemstones, you also will not have enough of the saltwater ammunition in order to blow through both these bosses without using like a weapon tank or something, so that's that's something to note. Then we have to fight the Wily Machine, which this time is completely stationary. The Wily Machine in this one rotates between three different attacks. It throws out a set of homing missiles at you, then it spawns an enemy that like removes the gravity and causes you to start floating upwards towards a spiked ceiling, and you have to shoot down the enemy in order to stop that. And then it will spit out a little, like, time bomb thing, and we actually have to knock the time bomb into the machine as it's blowing up. You can also kind of cheat by just using the black hole to finish it off, but that will burn through its ammo quickly, and if you don't have enough ammo, it's going to get turned into a really long and potentially frustrating boss fight really fast. This is a long way into a stage that at least has checkpoints, but again, if we game over, we're still going all the way back. When we destroy this Wily machine, we get... Another phase of it, where the ceiling collapses down and we're left in basically a thin little hallway. All Dr. Riley does here is he will fire projectiles along the ground and we have to jump over them. But the ceiling is spikes, so you have to be very careful with your jumps. Accidentally die here, and it's back to right before the fight with the Knuckles. So we're starting all four phases over again. And again, game over here, and it is all the way back to the start of this whole stage. This is a 16-boss long gauntlet. That's the longest we've seen by a large margin. Fortunately, the bosses in this game aren't too bad, the stage isn't too bad, but it is a gauntlet. But what if I told you it isn't over yet? After we defeat Dr. Wily, finally, we get a cutscene of Mega Man chasing down Wily's saucer, and he comes to this sealed casket or whatever and opens it up, and there is a feral-looking robot standing inside, who Dr. Wily refers to as the ancient doomsday device Sunstar or Sun God if you were in Japanese. Given Nintendo at the time, there was no way in hell that name was not getting changed for the Western release. Dr. Wily tells Sunstar, hey, this is Mega Man and you need to destroy him. And so Sunstar fires a shot that angles upwards instead and shoots down Dr. Wily. And then Sunstar addresses us, saying that he is a doomsday weapon and all inferior beings must be destroyed. And we get our final boss, not against Dr. Wily, but against the last of the Star Droids, Sunstar. This might be the only time in the classic Mega Man series. There might be like one more that I can maybe think of off the top of my head. You don't fight Dr. Wily as the final boss. This thing is implied to not even be Dr. Wily's creation. It's Dr. Wily messing with something he shouldn't have and we need to stop it. And Sunstar is a 
really awesome fight. He has a bunch of different kinds of attacks he can fire at you, and every like third of his health bar, he will bust up the floor and we will fall down to another arena, and that will signal that he has changed to a completely different set of attacks. As is tradition for the world games, though, he is weak to essentially the Mega Man killer of the game, Terra. Terra's weapon, again, just kind of lets you fire and forget, and you can focus entirely on dodging his attacks. Plus, since we had a cutscene, this is considered a separate stage. If we game over and have to continue, we just resume from the Sunstar fight. So you can just focus on enjoying this final boss battle, and I really, really love it. In the end, Mega Man damages Sunstar greatly and forces him to stop, but then extends the hand of friendship to him. Sunstar's like, hey, we, we were made to fight, what are you doing? And Mega Man's like, yeah, maybe we were, but that doesn't mean we have to. We can choose a peaceful option. And Sunstar's like, that sounds great, but um, I have a nuclear reactor inside me, and you've damaged it. It's gonna blow. You should get out of here. So Mega Man makes his escape, and Sunstar's explosion takes with it the Wily Death Star. And that's it. Robot roll call while Mega Man's back on Earth, looking up wistfully at the sky. Dr. Wily shows up in a busted-up Wily capsule, trying to finish off Mega Man, but um, it's taken too much damage from Sunstar's attack, and he just kind of falls out, and that's it. GG, thanks for playing. How do I feel overall about Mega Man World 5? This is a really good game. If there is any entry in the World series I think you should play, I do think it's this one. You get all the cool stuff that has been added to the world experiences over their original classic games. Not every level is necessarily a knockout of the park, but you do get a set of fully creative and unique levels. You get a really fun weapon set to use, and the difficulty, other than the fact that there is a long gauntlet at the end of it, the difficulty is very reasonable for the world games, especially in comparison to some of the non since they've pulled previously. I don't have any issue saying World 5 is just a really, really good execution of Mega Man within the confines of what the Game Boy was limited to. It is the final evolution of everything that they had been building up to and experimenting with, and if you like Mega Man, you should go play this one. And I feel like one of the best examples to explain why I think this is high quality is the music, because in the past I complain about some of the world games not really using the original tracks. World 5 doesn't need to, partially because, again, there aren't original tracks to remix for it, but also because it feels like it's actually composed by people who worked on the classic Mega Man games. Like, these tracks would have felt right at home in any of Mega Man 1 through 6. They are on theme, they are on brand, they are on energy. Uh, ironically, some of them are longer loops than some of the Mega Man X2 tracks, he said bitterly. <laughs> but it's, it's good stuff. The first track I'd like to highlight is actually the track for Venus's stage. This track gives a really good sense of just what I mean about this game having classic Mega Man energy. It's jazzy, it's upbeat, it's almost like sing-song. There's some serious musical chops to this track, and I actually like it a whole lot.
The next track that I want to highlight is Pluto's stage. For the fact that the stage was not terribly remarkable, I think the theme for the stage really amps it up by just having kind of this melancholy to it, which only gets more and more interesting from modern point of view, where Pluto's no longer even considered to be worthwhile of a planet. I don't know. I think this is a case where, like, the music itself makes the stage a lot stronger than it could have been. last track I want to highlight today is Sunstar's theme, which, oh man, this is such a good final boss track. Yeah, it's a short loop because it is a boss track on the Game Boy, but also this thing is like really high energy. There's this full-on like breakdown where it's just kind of going fully wild, which it's weird to say there's a breakdown bit in it when it's a short loop, but that's that's the way it feels. I love the way that it kicks in at the end of the cutscene and then keeps playing as we transition into the actual boss fight. This is just a really, really kicking track and probably one of my favorite to date, really. <laughs> All of that done, we are finally, finally, finally free from 1994. We have been here for multiple episodes in a row because it was one of the most cluttered years for Mega Man releases. From here on out, things... Uh, well, okay, they don't always slow down completely, but they do generally slow down some, and we can enjoy them for that. Next episode, we'll be back to the SNES. But not for Mega Man X3, we're actually going to go see what happens when the Classic series finally makes the jump off of the NES and onto something more powerful. Until then, if you like what you've been hearing, or want to shoot any sort of commentary my way, feel free to hit me up at whatamipodcastingfor at gmail.com. Keep an eye open for updates on Twitter at whatamipodcastfor, as in using the number four. Drop by waipf.podbean.com to get updates, or just get an RSS feed for your favorite provider, which should be on all of them. Thanks for listening. I've been Garlisle. And remember, ancient alien robot superweapons. That's canon to the Mega Man universe. The next Star Droid... <laughs> so, he's a, he's a really good um, position to start the game with. He's a real... The first planet we meet, meet we head out to Uranus. <laughs> Following defeating these, we finally get our rope. Finally. And with Terra down, we've taken down the Nar- not. And so Dr. Wily pulls the snap cube and uh, prepares to piss on the moon. Uh, we get the heck off. No, that's not something we can leave in the general podcast. Let's find a way to rephrase that. <laughs>